0: For today, I want you to come with me as we are going to begin Acts chapter 9. Not only a turning point in the book of Acts, but in a very significant way, a turning point in human history. And we as Gentiles, about 6 or 7 thousand miles away from where this took place, and two millennia away from where this took place... This is God's calling of the man that he used to open the door for the gospel to go full-blown to Gentiles. The main character in this passage is Saul of Tarsus, a man named Saul from the city of Tarsus. This is the record of his conversion to Christ. We've already been tangentially uh, introduced to him in the book of Acts on the day that that uh, former deacon turned evangelist turned martyr, Stephen, on the day that Stephen was killed. We read this back at the end of chapter 7. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, that implies that, at, I mean, at the minimum, we know Saul was present at Stephen's murder. More likely he was the instigator to lay the the robes at his feet implies that they recognized him as uh, the ringleader. Saul's conversion is spectacular and it's going to be recorded. It is recorded here in chapter 9 and we will see it recounted by Paul as his name was changed to Paul after his conversion. We're going to see him recount it twice on later occasions. Now, right now here in chapter 9, we're going to see Saul's conversion, and we'll see what happened shortly thereafter, and then we will return to the ministry of Peter, and we will see how God opened the door then to the Gentiles and then brought Paul along as the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, uh, before we dive in, I wanted to try to give you a, a little perspective, and I've had the question come to me a, a couple of times, of how long it took for, for all of this to, to play out. When, when did this actually happen? And if we can figure out uh, the sequence, or not we know the sequence, if we can figure out the timing of the events in the first uh, chapters of Acts, I think it helps our grasp of what's going on here. It's not as if uh, chapter 2 took place the day after chapter 1, and then chapter 3, the day after that, and 4, 5, and 6 in the next week or two, um, it, it, it took some time. It took, it took days. It took weeks. It took months for these things to unfold. Now, if we needed to know exactly when, God would have included that information in His Word, but He, but he didn't. Nevertheless, without biblical statements, and therefore we don't know with precision, we have a pretty good idea. And of course, even the best of scholars disagree about some of the details, but the overall framework is pretty clear. Now, for one thing, we have a difficulty with the calculation of years according to our calendar. We operate on what is known as the Gregorian (coughs) calendar. Um, It's only been in use since A.D. 1582. In the first edition of it, it had a picture of a cute dog named Gregory on the front, hence the Gregorian calendar, or something like that. The reason that the Gregorian calendar supplanted the former Julian calendar is because in the setting up of the Julian calendar, there was a slight miscalculation of the length of a day. You know, it's just over 24 hours and with that miscalculation as the calendar rolled over year after year the the placement of the leap years was off and so the calendar slipped the days on the calendar slipped steadily away from the actual equinoxes and the changing of the seasons so now we have the gregorian calendar but oops it has a problem We know that Jesus was born when Herod the Great was still alive. We know that Herod the Great died in 5 or 4 B.C., like late winter, so could have been 5, could have been 4 B.C. And so, therefore, the entire B.C. and A.D. reckoning is not exactly 100% accurate to the year. Uh, Jesus was born before Christ. Go ahead and figure that out but you get it we all the, the dates have been assigned afterwards now the crucifixion and resurrection most likely took place we, we know it was in spring it was at the time of the passover it most likely took place in AD 30 that puts the arrival of the holy spirit and the glorious events of acts chapter 2 in that late spring to early summer of AD 30 now there are some Um, Good, solid Bible-believing scholars who think that the year was A.D. 29 instead of A.D. 30. So there's yet another wrinkle. I think that the best evidence points to A.D. 30 for Jesus' crucifixion. Think about it. Jesus was born 5 or 4 B.C., there is no zero. There's no year zero either direction. It's 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. I know it makes your head, brain start sweating if you try to figure out uh, all that stuff. And it said that he was about 30 years old when he b- went public in the ministry and that he ministered for about three and a half years. It, it adds up and comes out right. So 30 A.D. for the crucifixion and resurrection, we'll assume that. That puts the stoning of Stephen likely in the year A.D. 32 or 33. And as you can see, it's already impossible to be precise. Even the very best of estimates are plus or minus a year. But what I want you to get is it wasn't just Monday chapter 1, Tuesday chapter 2, Wednesday chapter 3, Thursday chapter 4. This all took a a couple of years. Now we know from chapter 8 verse 1, that the outbreak of intense persecution in and around Jerusalem, which was fomented by Saul of Tarsus, we know that immediately followed Stephen's murder. And that persecution led to many believers leaving the Jerusalem area. And we know that in part of that exodus, part of that dispersion, that was when Philip, the former deacon-turned-evangelist, Chose to go to Samaria. And we saw what happened there in the last uh, chapter. And we know that that took some time. Uh, He went there. There was a lot of evangelism going on, a lot of conversions, a whole lot going on. And then that went on long enough that news got back to Jerusalem. Then the apostles in Jerusalem decided to send Peter and John down there to visit Philip to see what was going on and to pray for the believers there so that they could receive the Holy Spirit. And we know that that took a little while. We know that Philip, Peter, and John then ministered in many villages in Samaria after the Holy Spirit came. And as I said back then in chapter 8, if you think in terms of evangelizing Samaritans, that would have been done synagogue by synagogue. The Samaritans had their own versions of the synagogue. So at least a week would have intervened from Sabbath to Sabbath to Sabbath for all the stops along their journey of the many villages in Samaria. So all of that to say, a few years have passed since the start of the book of Acts. Now, I have become thoroughly convinced that Saul's conversion took place in A.D. 33 or, or 34. Could have been 32. Maybe 35, maybe 36. It probably happened in 33, and the second choice would be 34. We can't be certain about it, but we can be certain that it took at least two or three years, maybe more, for the events of Acts chapters 1 through 8 to unfold. It took a while for 10,000 plus people to come to Christ and the church to grow in Jerusalem. We know there were events and arrests of apostles and and, and imprisonment and all kinds of things that happened in between now. All right, so that's just some, some perspective. We're probably three or four years into the events of the book of Acts. Now, let's see about the conversion of Saul. Here's an outline for you. The introduction, loathsome persecutor Saul... Then letters from the high priest, light from heaven, Lord Jesus speaking, and leading blind Saul. And We're only going to get nine verses into it. So let's talk about this loathsome persecutor, Saul, by way of introduction. There's no mincing words in the first description of this man. Chapter 9 starts out, Now Saul still... Breathing threats and murders, threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Saul was intent on ridding the world of followers of Jesus Christ. He was breathing threats and murder. It's kind of a way to follow the figure of speech and say, it was the air he breathed. There was nothing more important to this guy than stomping out Christians and preventing the gospel from spreading. And notice it says, now Saul still breathing threats and murder. That little word still gives us an important clue. This was an ongoing thing. Uh, it, It had already been happening. He helped instigate the murder of Stephen, then that intense persecution broke out in Jerusalem. He did as much damage as he could uh, in as many places as he could, drove away as many people as possible from Jerusalem, and now he's still doing it. And by the way, that connects to what we've already heard back in chapter 8, verse 3. It says, Saul began ravaging the church Entering house after house and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. And one of the ways that that word ravaging, which occurs only here in the New Testament, one of the ways it's used outside the Bible was for a wild boar going through a campsite. Not a pretty uh, picture. Now, that followed on the heels of the stoning of Stephen. So when you see still, it's implying some time has elapsed. How long? We don't know but at least weeks, months, um, and Saul was relentless, still breathing threats and murder. Now we know a fair amount about Saul's background before he became known as the Apostle Paul. He was a Jew by birth. Um, He was not a Jew from Jerusalem or Judea or Galilee. He was one of those... Hellenistic Jews. Remember? Hellenistic means Greek speaking. He didn't he didn't grow up um, near headquarters at around the temple. He was born in Tarsus. That was an important Roman city in the province of Cilicia. In case you want to do a little map research, you can find out where that was. It was about twenty miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. Um, uh, in Turkey at, at what is now on the border of Turkey and Syria um, it was a prominent city it, it was known for one of the most prestigious universities in the Roman world the university at Tarsus was a rival with the university at Athens and the university at Alexandria so it was a you know, Harvard, Yale Princeton kind of category of, of place Now when we get up in chapter 22, we're going to see that Paul will make it very clear that he is also a Roman citizen, which means that Saul's father must have been a Roman citizen as well. And when he gives his testimony in chapter 22, we're going to see that he makes it clear he studied in Jerusalem under that most prestigious rabbi of that era, a man named Gamaliel, at least that's how we pronounce it. They probably say Gamaliel in, uh, in Hebrew, but I screw up Hebrew every time I try. So the credentials of Saul, who became Paul, were impeccable in the world of Jerusalem. He was at the top of the heap. Uh, in some of his writings, he makes mention that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. So he was knowledgeable of and proud of his heritage. Uh, he also must have followed in the footsteps of his father by becoming a pharisee that 's the most uh, strict group within Ju- within Judaism. They were the ones that dominated the teachings of the rabbis in all of the in all of the synagogues, so they had the most sway over the most people and they taught the damnable heresy of self righteousness that they could be righteous in themselves by the works that They had done. Now, you didn't get to be a Pharisee who could study under someone of the statue of Gamaliel unless you were very well connected and highly educated. That door wouldn't even be open, wouldn't even be available for you to knock on. Now, from what we know of the customs within Judaism, Saul was most likely sent off from Tarsus to Jerusalem to spend his years in tutelage under Gamaliel when he was a teenager. Now, there's no definitive statement to this effect, but it does not seem that Paul, Saul, was ever exposed to Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. Um, He met Jesus here in Acts chapter 9. So it's likely that Saul returned to Tarsus after his studies... And that may have been, well, before Jesus actually came on the scene. And with training like that, he would have quickly become a leader in the synagogues there. And he was still called yet a young man. Let's say he was a contemporary of Jesus. So a man in his early 30s was the one that was um, causing all of this persecution to go on. The loftiness of Saul's reputation among the Jews is, is evidenced by the fact that Though he was not from Jerusalem, he could navigate back and forth between Tarsus in the Greek-speaking world and Jerusalem, which was pretty, well, and pretty tight among the leaders in the Sanhedrin. He could go back and forth and be accepted in both places. He was one of those Hellenistic Jews born outside the immediate land around um, Israel and a native Greek speaker. Obviously, he also learned uh, Hebrew. We know that he was very effective at what he did. He drove many Christians out of Jerusalem. And while it was evil on his part, God used it in his plan to spread the gospel by spreading out the people that are infected with the gospel. And his persecution played a role in Philip choosing to go to Samaria. And that led to Philip being used to lead that Ethiopian to the Lord. And then, remember, it says he preached his way along down the Mediterranean coast as far as, as Caesarea. So God used Saul even before Saul had a clue that he was being used by God. Now, it may well have been that it was the impact of Stephen and Philip that might have pushed Saul over the edge to the point of his murderous intentions against Christians. Why? Well, Stephen and Philip were also Hellenistic Jews. And maybe it didn't strike Saul quite as potently when this stuff was happening in Jerusalem, but now it's his people that are turning to Christ, the Hellenistic ones and Maybe that's what fired him up. So for such a man to turn to Jesus Christ is very special. Now, not to mention the the massive work that God called him to after his conversion. John MacArthur wrote a little summary of it at this point in his commentary. He says, "...it is fitting that such a unique individual would have a unique conversion." Saul was, by birth, a Jew, by citizenship, a Roman, by education, a Greek, and purely by the grace of God, a Christian. He was a missionary, theologian, evangelist, pastor, organizer, leader, thinker, fighter for truth, and lover of souls. Never has a more godly man lived except our Lord himself. I suppose you could argue with that last sentence if you want to, but the point is, this is a unique guy, and his conversion is very significant. Well, that's the loathsome persecutor, Saul. Now let's move into the text itself. Letters from the high priest. Saul had provoked many Christians to move out of Jerusalem. Some apparently fled to Damascus. Either they fled there from the persecution or they had been there, maybe at Pentecost, we don't know for sure. But Saul heard there are some Christians now in Damascus, and he pursued them with his hateful vengeance. Later, when the Apostle Paul is going to give his testimony before King Agrippa, he will say this, it's Acts 26, 9 through 11. I don't want to preach 26 while we're on 9, but... This will help you understand it. This is Paul speaking. He says, So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I had to do it, he says. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. And not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also... When they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them, often, in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Those are strong words. And this is not some guy who's out there trying to slander Paul. This is Paul saying, this was me. I felt I had to do these hostile things, furiously enraged, pursuing them, even to foreign cities. Now, here's what Paul was referring to in the words of Luke, recounting his conversion. Acts 9, 1 and 2. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, And asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he was going after disciples of the Lord. That's not just the apostles, that's all who follow uh, Jesus Christ. And Saul heard that there were now Christians in Damascus. Now obviously, they were Jews who had become Christians, because they were still meeting in the synagogues. The gospel has not yet been uh, fully unleashed among the Gentiles. We've only got the record of that conversion of the Ethiopian back in chapter 8. Now, as the leader of that Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, uh, the Romans regarded that leader of the Sanhedrin, the high priest, They considered him as the de facto head of the Jewish state under Roman authority. As long as they didn't rebel against Rome, the Romans gave the Jews quite a bit of latitude to handle their own things. And so Paul, Saul, knew the high priest was the one who had the authority to grant his request to give him letters, authorize him to go to Damascus and wreck things in the synagogues where there were Christians. Now, since the authorization included arresting people and bringing them to Jerusalem for trial, think about it. That means that it also included sending temple police with Saul to be able to arrest these people and bring them back. So it must have been quite an entourage making its way to Damascus. Now what do we know about Damascus? It was the ancient capital of Syria. It uh, contained a large population of Jews. There would have been many synagogues there. We know that about 30 years after this, in the year AD 66, there were between 10,000 and 20,000 Jews at Damascus who were massacred by the Romans. So if there's that many, 30 years from now, there were a lot then when, um, when Saul went there. And we know that um, among them, there would have been many who had turned to Christ. Now he says uh, he wanted authority if he found any belonging to the way. He could arrest them. The way is probably a pejorative nickname for Christians it would be mocking the fact that the Christians preached that Jesus is the only way. We saw it in Acts 4:12. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So we're confronted with this loathsome persecutor Paul or Saul rather. He gets letters from the high priest and then verse 3 comes Light from heaven. When God so chooses, he can make a point in an instant. Just before Saul and his little religious army reached Damascus, something totally unexpected and unprecedented happened. It's in verse 3. As he was traveling... It happened that he was approaching Damascus. We're told that it would take a caravan five, six, seven days to get there. They're, they're just coming up to the, to the walls of Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. Now, bear in mind, they're traveling in a desert region in the Middle East. The sun is bright. And Far over and above the intensity of the sun came a light from heaven. In chapter twenty-six, verse thirteen, when Paul's describing this later, he's going to say it was brighter than the sun. And the the Greek there is literally above the brightness of the sun. And the Greek preposition that's used there is huper, from which we get our prefix hyper Saul says something hyper bright super sun appeared around us got his attention next is Lord Jesus speaking didn't take long for Saul to learn the source of the blinding light verse 4 and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is amazing. The, The voice is the voice of Jesus speaking from heaven and appearing to Saul. He knows Saul by name, and he repeats it. Saul, Saul. For emphasis, for urgency. That's even worse than when your mother uses your full name and your middle name. You know this is a big deal. Then the question, why are you persecuting me? Now as I said, there's, there's no indication that Saul had ever met Jesus. And furthermore, where's Jesus Hanging out these days. Well, he ascended to the Father. But this is the light of Jesus from heaven. Um, so, what's with this persecuting me? Saul didn't even know Jesus. He was attacking Christians, he was attacking followers of the way. Well, the point is that Jesus is so. Im- in- intimately identified with the people that he redeems that to persecute Christians is to persecute Jesus himself. If someone attacks a Christian on earth, that blow is felt by the faithful high priest in heaven. There is union between Christ and his people. Like Jesus said before he went to the cross, if they hated me, they will hate you also. And eventually, after he became Paul, he would write, ironically, from a prison cell, Colossians 1.24, he says, "Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of His body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions." Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't suffer enough. It means that all the suffering we <coughs> excuse me, we endure on earth for the sake of His name and for the sake of the gospel, it's aimed at him. And since he isn't available for a physical attack, the dupes of Satan attack the ones who represent Jesus, and that's us because we are his ambassadors begging people to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Back to Acts 9, verse 5. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Now, isn't it interesting that Saul immediately said, "Who are you, Lord?" He didn't say, uh, "Hello, you've, you, you know, you've reached Saul of Tarsus. Who's calling, please? Who are you, Lord?" And he used the word "Lord," "Master." anyone who can knock you to the ground with a blinding light is clearly someone to listen to. That person is the master in that situation. Did he fully understand a robust Christology? I don't think so yet, but it didn't take long to figure out who this was. Jesus graciously explained to Saul that this is just the start, Saul. There's going to be more. Get up, enter the city, it will be told to you what you must do. Now, here's an interesting sidelight. Well, you know, I, I, I've read ahead. I'll tell you that there is also a man in Damascus, a man named Ananias, clearly not the Ananias of Acts chapter 5 that was killed in front of church, common name. Um, God appeared to that Christian named Ananias and told him that Saul was coming. And you better go talk to him. And, and that was a tough day for Ananias. You know, God does some explaining there um, to, to Ananias to get him to do that. We'll see that um, when we move on through chapter 9 in our next visit to the book of Acts. Well, that leads us to leading blind Saul. You know, that was a pretty drastic change of plans. We're going to see what happens with Saul as he becomes Paul. And it's going to continue to be jaw-dropping. Now, I had one of those mischievous little thoughts. You know, my brain, I try not to let it out too much. It's too small to be out on its own. But sometimes it'll, it'll wander. And it did this week. I started thinking, I bet there's some stories from among those people who were traveling with Saul? Oh, they're not recorded anywhere. I've never even heard of some kind of a, uh, a theory about what might have happened to them. But don't you wonder what some of their stories might be? Wouldn't it be cool to meet a couple of them in heaven and say, yeah, I was, I was there that day, and I've seen the book of Acts... It was even more incredible than those words can describe. Well, we don't know, but we do know this about them. Chapter 9, verse 7. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Now, stood speechless says a lot. When you're a, a policeman or a soldier and you're traveling under the authority of this guy who is your leader, and somebody attacks the leader, you don't usually fold your hands and shut your mouth and say, "I wonder what this is going to be." Stood, they were astounded. These were the temple thugs. They were the same ilk that had arrested and imprisoned apostles in Jerusalem that had come after Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with the help of the Romans. They'd helped Saul do house-to-house searches and carry Christians off to prison. Surely they cheered as the members of the Sanhedrin killed Stephen. And they stood speechless, dumbfounded. Kind of reminds me of those Roman soldiers who guarded the tomb of Jesus I mean, face it, it's got to be pretty light duty to be a soldier and your job is don't let the dead guy escape. And remember it says that when the angels showed up to move the stone and open the grave that they were frozen in place like dead men. Kind of the same thing happened here. They stood speechless. Now, they saw the light and they were hearing the voice, but seeing no one. You know, you can hear a voice without actually knowing who, who you're hearing or what you're hearing. Um, some years ago when uh, Mountain View High School opened, and, and our house is about a mile away from there, we're um, sitting watching something on TV on Sunday night, and I started hearing voices. I said, Marsha, did you hear that? I don't hear anything couple minutes later. We're hearing the, the PA announcer on the football field at the high school a mile away. We're hearing the voice. Didn't see anybody. It took us a while to figure it out and we almost went to a psychiatrist to see what was going on. But they're hearing it. They're seeing the light, but they don't know what's going on. We're soon going to find out a little later down the page, that in the midst of the blinding light, Jesus actually appeared to Paul. And Paul will explain that later. The other's presence saw the light but didn't see Jesus. They heard the sound of the voice, but they didn't hear the distinct, uh, the distinct words that were spoken. When we get to chapter 22 and 26, I'm going to show you a fascinating aspect of Greek grammar that resolve what critics like to say is a contradiction because it says in one place they heard the voice another place it says they didn't hear the voice and that's not a contradiction and I'll show you how and it's totally legit and extremely cool well suddenly the mission of these temple police was changed from making arrests to caring for their blind leader look at verse 8 Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. This was not the blindness of darkness. This was the blindness of light. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And again, there's things we'd like to know and we aren't told. Um, uh, what, where did they first go in Damascus? Damascus. They were probably talking about, well, tonight we're going to, um, overnight at the first uh, synagogue that we, that we come to, and then on, uh, on Saturday we'll go in and we'll start rousting the Christians and separating them and, and, and arresting them. Is that what they did? When did Saul actually get into the hands of the Christians rather than the Jews and his entourage of temple police thugs? That can't have been a real smooth, easy transition. See, there's a lot of stuff that goes on here, and this, to, and this takes some time. So what, and, and I'm curious, what did the temple police eventually say happened out there before they got to Damascus? We know in, in Matthew 28 about those Roman soldiers, they made up that, that really, really brilliant theory Well, while we were asleep, the disciples came and stole the body. Yeah, right. If you were Roman soldiers guarding a tomb and you fell asleep, you wouldn't be around to tell the story, let alone the disciples tippy-toed in, moved the multi-ton stone, stole the body. What did these guys say? We don't know. Now, in coming weeks in the book of Acts, we're going to see what God has determined that we need to know. We won't know all those stories unless some of those people are in heaven or we can interview Luke about writing this or Paul about seeing this. But I'll tell you, everything we're going to see is do nothing but bring glory to Christ. Now, how is that for a change of plans? Now, we're going to see what happens with Saul and it I promise it will be jaw-dropping. Saul's world was turned Upside down. Look at verse 9 and we'll stop for this morning. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Talk about a change. Suddenly, Saul's friends are going to be his enemies. He's going to end up fleeing from the people that were backing him in this quest to kill Christians. Soon those who were his enemies, soon those who were the targets of his arrest and murder uh, intents, will become his friends. His entire purpose for living has been ripped out from under him. You can only imagine all that went through his mind in those three days without sight. The verse tells us that he fasted, Not a surprise. I don't think food would be your highest priority in a situation like that. And we're going to see a little further down the page that he prayed, I guess. Um, And I'm going to hazard a guess. He probably didn't do much sleeping those three days. And I'm sure there wasn't any small talk with those who traveled with him. Suddenly, he doesn't fit anywhere. But look at this conversion. This is amazing. And you know what? It's just like your conversion. Well, you didn't see a blinding light. I'll give you that. All right, Jesus didn't appear to you physically. Okay, he didn't speak to you audibly. You probably weren't struck blind. But this was just like your conversion if you belong to Jesus Christ. If you don't belong to Jesus Christ, today's the day that that needs to change. Now, how is this like your conversion? Well, God arranged for you to be in the right place at the right time of His choosing to hear the gospel. If you've never committed your life to Christ, you are in the right place at the right time today to hear the gospel. And it may turn your world upside down. It always does. This was just like your conversion if you belong to Christ in that he convicted you of your sin. I had never thought about the fact that I was a sinner alienated from God. I just accepted the offer of a ride with a friend to go to the library to take back some library books. And while I was there, someone shared the gospel and I find myself confessing my sins. God arranged that. And if you belong to Christ, it was something like that for you, whether it was a moment in time or a period of time. If it's never been the case for you, I ask you today to ponder whether you meet God's standard. Jesus put it quite succinctly, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect obedience to all of God's laws all the time in every situation, every second of your life, that is the standard. And anything less than that And you prove, the famous words, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So for someone to come to Christ, you don't need a blinding light, visitation from Jesus, but he arranges it. And God arranges for someone to tell you the gospel. In this case, it was Jesus himself. Now, if you don't know what the gospel is, here it is, 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So have you ever cried out to Him and said, Lord Jesus, I need You. Forgive me. Begin to make me over into the person You created me to be. Have you ever done that? Or will you today? Will you confess your sinfulness to Him? Will you admit that you are a sinner and you know you can't be good enough to stand in the presence of your Creator and your Judge, Almighty, thrice-holy God? Will you accept the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. You're not good enough to earn it. You have to receive it as His gift. And by the way, as we think about this man who was saved on the day recorded here so gloriously, do you realize what a momentous day that was? Because as I said, we are the recipients of what God did through this man God used him as the apostle to the Gentiles here we are to my knowledge a 100% Gentile audience and maybe not that's fine where we sit thousands of miles away two millennia away preaching the same gospel believing in the same Christ enjoying the same eternal life looking forward to the same blessed hope this is Saul that horrible persecutor who became Paul, that beloved apostle. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your work so vividly illustrated in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And Father, thank you that that same message. Is the only one that can save a soul today. Thank you that we stand complete in Christ, we who have put our faith in Him. And oh Father, please, if anyone here today is just beginning by your grace, by the work of your Spirit, to recognize they need you, that they have sinned against you, that they need a Savior, would this be the day? that they turn to you, we pray. Have your way in our lives. Thank you for this glorious message that we have, and may we be good ambassadors of your kingdom, begging people to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ who took our sins that we might have his righteousness. Thank you for that. In his name, amen.